Welcome to The Dark Diaries, the podcast where the darkest stories shed the brightest light on our fears. In this episode, we delve into the horrifying tale of one of America's most notorious serial killers, the BTK Killer. In the peaceful city of Wichita, Kansas, an unassuming figure resided, unnoticed by the community. A seemingly ordinary family man, characterized by his glasses, harbored a terrifying secret that nobody could have anticipated. Neither his own family nor the children in his Boy Scout troop could comprehend the dark reality that lay hidden beneath his unassuming exterior. However, behind this unremarkable facade, a sinister evil dwelled. From 1974 to 1991, this individual claimed the lives of ten individuals in and around Wichita. Perhaps, if not for his yearning for attention, he might have remained undetected, continuing to commit these heinous crimes. In the early hours of January 1974, a sequence of gruesome murders occurred, causing a shockwave throughout the community. A home invasion took place, orchestrated by a masked assailant wielding a firearm, targeting the Otero family. Joseph Otero, his wife Julie, and their two children, Joey and Josephine, were residing in the house when this horrifying incident occurred. Upon entering the premises, the intruder instructed Mr. Otero to remove their family dog, after which the entire family was ushered into the living room. Within that space, they were compelled to surrender their money under duress. Unbeknownst to them, their compliance would not ensure their safety. Under false pretenses, the intruder moved the Otero family to the bedroom. Believing that cooperation would protect their lives and possessions, they willingly allowed themselves to be bound. Tragically, this act of compliance proved futile, as the true intention of the perpetrator emerged survival was not possible on that fateful night. Before systematically binding and ending the lives of each family member, the perpetrator exhibited a peculiar twist in their behavior. Learning that Mr. Otero had a cracked rib from a car accident, the perpetrator attempted to provide him with some semblance of comfort by providing him extra pillows for his head and thick blankets for his body, a disturbing contradiction in the midst of the chaos. Ultimately, Mr. Otero was suffocated with a bag and strangled with a cord. Julie Otero proved more resilient, requiring multiple attempts to strangle as she awakened during the ordeal. It was the first time the intruder strangled anybody with his bare hands. Eventually, the perpetrator succeeded in ending her life, though it took much longer than intended. After dispatching the parents, the assailant turned their attention to 11-year-old Josephine subjecting her to a strangulation that left her unconscious. The perpetrator then moved on to nine-year-old Joey, leading him to another bedroom, where he was suffocated with a shirt and bag over his head. In a heart-wrenching turn of events, Josephine regained consciousness, only to be taken by the assailant to the basement. Her last words to this cruel figure were filled with fear and uncertainty, as she asked, What's going to happen to me? In response, the assailant callously replied, Well, Honey, you're going to be in heaven with the rest of your family. Shockingly, the assailant proceeded to hang Josephine and committed further acts of desecration.
Following the brutal murders, the assailants systematically moved from room to room, cleaning up and looting the premises. Among the stolen items were a radio, a watch, and the keys to a car, enabling the assailant to make their escape. Subsequently, they drove to a Dillon supermarket, their next destination obscured by the darkness that enveloped their twisted psyche. The unsettling discovery of the Otero family unfolded when their three older children, Charlie, Danny, and Carmen, returned home from school. A sense of unease washed over them as they noticed their dog outside an unusual occurrence. Stepping inside, their once-familiar home appeared disheveled, with belongings strewn about in a haphazard manner a stark departure from its usual tidiness. Charlie, the eldest sibling, called out for their parents, initially assuming they were playing a mischievous prank. However, the truth would soon shatter their lives forever. It was when Charlie ventured into the bedroom that the devastating reality revealed itself their parents' lives had been tragically cut short. Overwhelmed by shock and despair, Charlie and his siblings swiftly sought refuge at a neighbor's house, urgently dialing 911 for assistance. Little did they know at that moment, the heart-wrenching truth awaited them at the police station. It was there that they would learn of the unimaginable fate suffered by their younger siblings, Josephine and Joey. Although burdened by immense grief, a small solace could be found in the fact that they were spared the devastating sight of discovering their siblings' lifeless bodies on that harrowing day. As forensic teams meticulously combed through the grim murder scene, disturbing evidence began to emerge. The phone lines were cut to the home. Semen was discovered on a sewer pipe near where young Josephine had been tragically hung, as well as on her leg though there was no sign of sexual assault. However, in the 1970s, semen analysis provided limited information. Each family member had suffered a similar fate, bound, suffocated, and strangled. Further clues surfaced as investigators unearthed a partial fingerprint on one of the chairs that the perpetrator, whose identity remained undisclosed, had used while observing the victim's torment as they breathed their last breaths. Detectives conjectured that the murders had been premeditated and carefully planned, as the cords used to bind the victims did not originate from within the house but were brought in from elsewhere. Detectives also believe the perpetrator was armed with a gun due to the compliance and binding. Josephine, in particular, appeared to have been the primary target, evident from the state in which she was left partially naked and the presence of semen on and around her. A massive investigation was launched, with interviews conducted and eyewitnesses sought. Some individuals reported sighting the Oteros' car driving around during the early morning hours. However, despite these eyewitness statements who reported a darker-skinned individual driving away, none proved fruitful in unmasking the culprit. By all accounts, the initial murders perpetrated by this individual remained disturbingly successful, evading detection and sending shockwaves through the community. It would be a matter of months before the killer would strike again. For these heinous acts only momentarily satisfied their murderous cravings. Yet, the insatiable urge to kill re-emerged, foreshadowing the imminent loss of yet another innocent life. 
In April 1974, as Catherine and her brother Kevin arrived home, an unexpected and horrifying encounter awaited them an armed intruder lurking in the shadows of her bedroom, brandishing a gun. Mirroring the chilling tactics employed in the Otero murders, the intruder demanded both money and a means of escape. Under the threat of the gun, Kevin was coerced into subduing his sister by binding her to a chair. He was then forcibly taken to another room, where a struggle ensued as the intruder attempted to strangle him with a cord. Showing remarkable bravery, Kevin fought back against his assailant. Tragically, his valiant resistance met a grim fate as two gunshots from a .22 caliber pistol pierced his face. Despite sustaining severe gunshot wounds, Kevin survived and pretended to be dead, lying motionless for a while. Eventually, he seized an opportunity to escape and managed to make his way outside. In a desperate search for help, Kevin flagged down a passing motorist who swiftly rushed him to a nearby hospital. Meanwhile, the intruder returned to Catherine, subjecting her to a savage assault. She endured three vicious stab wounds to her abdomen and left side. Unfortunately, this particular endeavor proved to be far from successful for the intruder. The hasty nature of the attack denied him the perverse pleasure of tormenting his victims at leisure. Reluctantly, he resorted to stabbing Catherine in a desperate attempt to eliminate a potential witness, having neglecting wearing a mask this time. When law enforcement arrived, they discovered Catherine in an unconscious state. Despite her immediate transfer to the hospital, she succumbed to her wounds five hours later, tragically losing her life. Kevin, who had been present during the assault, provided the police with a description of the assailant. According to Kevin, the attacker was a male, around 25 years old, wearing orange and had a black stocking cap. Detectives speculated that the killer had likely anticipated Catherine's return home alone and had to adjust their plans upon discovering Kevin's presence. Despite the initial leads, the investigation into Catherine Bright's murder gradually grew cold, leaving very few avenues to pursue. The detectives investigating the cases of the Otero family and Catherine Bright did not establish a connection between them, unaware that they were both the work of the same perpetrator. In October 1974, a breakthrough occurred when the police apprehended three individuals who confessed to the Otero murders. However, this development did not sit well with the true culprit. He detested others claiming credit for what he considered his own projects as it would later be revealed. On October 22, an employee at the Wichita Eagle newspaper received a call from an individual asserting responsibility for the Otero murders. The caller informed that a letter had been concealed inside a mechanical engineering textbook at the main branch of the Wichita Public Library. This valuable tip was promptly relayed to the police, who subsequently discovered a letter containing intricate information about the crime scenes of the Otero family murders. The letter appeared authentic, as it provided meticulous accounts of the position of each body and the circumstances surrounding the deaths of the Otero family. Here are two excerpts from the letter edited for clarity. Excerpt 1 
I write this letter to you for the sake of the taxpayer as well as your time. Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it by myself and with no one's help. There has been no talk either. Let's put this straight. Excerpt 2 I'm sorry this happened to society. They are the ones who suffer the most. It's hard to control myself. You probably call me psychotic with sexual perversion hang up. When this monster enter my brain I will never know. But, it here to stay. How does one cure himself? If you ask for help, that you have killed four people they will laugh or hit the panic button and call the cops. I can't stop it so the monster goes on and hurt me as well as society. Society can be thankful that there are ways for people like me to relieve myself at time by daydreams of some victims being torture and being mine. It a big complicated game my friend of the monster play putting victims number down, follow them, checking up on them waiting in the dark, waiting, waiting, the pressure is great and sometimes he run the game to his liking. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He has already chosen his next victim or victims. I don't who they are yet. The next day after I read the paper, I will know, but it's too late. Good luck hunting. Yours, truly guiltily. The letter was not signed, but there was a postscript. P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their M.O. or by nature cannot do so, I will not change mine. The code words for me will be Bind them, torture them, kill them, BTK, you see he added again. They will be on the next victim. In the chilling letter, the killer states there is a monstrous entity residing within their own mind, fueled by an enigmatic force called Factor X. Disturbingly, they ominously promise that more victims will follow. At this stage, the police withheld certain details to avoid triggering false confessions and refrained from publicly declaring the presence of a serial killer on the loose. It was also on this letter that they first encountered BTK's signature that would appear on almost all official BTK correspondence. BTK signed his name in a sexually suggestive way, where the letter B had two dots making it shaped to look like woman's breasts, and it was stacked on top of the T and K from top to bottom, where the K would form the woman's genital area. This bit of information was held back and only persons close to the investigation would know of the signature. Thus began a gripping cat-and-mouse game between the police and the now-dubbed BTK killer. Efforts to investigate individuals who had checked out the textbook proved fruitless, leading authorities to take a bold step. They placed an advertisement in the Wichita Eagle newspaper, inviting BTK to contact them at a specified phone number. However, days passed without any response. The letter underwent meticulous analysis by forensic psychologists, revealing disturbing insights into BTK's psychology. They determined that BTK exhibited characteristics of a sexual sadist, harboring a particular fascination with bondage and torture. 
Furthermore, the experts concluded that BTK did not possess a high level of education evident from the grammatical and spelling errors present in the letters. It would be several years of silence until BTK struck again. On March 17, 1977, five-year-old Steve Relford answered the door and unwittingly invited in a stranger, claiming to be a private detective, asking him to ID a photo. The uninvited man then pulls out a gun and forces his way through the room, where he notices two additional children present. The mother Shirley Vian came out as she heard commotion and was surprised to see an unknown man in her living room. The intruder ordered all the kids to go into the bathroom and proceeded to tell Shirley he was going to have his way with her and that he may have to tie up her kids too. In a desperate bid to protect the children from harm, Shirley reluctantly complied and accompanied the man, hoping that compliance would spare them from danger. As the children's cries filled the air, disturbing the intruder, he opted to confine them in the bathroom, securing the door with a makeshift rope tie. With his attention now solely fixed on Shirley, he attempted to appease her, offering a cigarette and a glass of water in an effort to calm her. However, his intentions quickly turned sinister. He proceeded to restrain her, binding her limbs, and ultimately, placed a bag over her head, strangling her. As he was cleaning up, the phone rang and spooked him. He took some money and his things and then left. The kids eventually broke out from the window and when they saw their mom, they tried in desperation to untie the knots without success. Police would discover Vian partially nude, tied up and strangled with semen on her panties. The children described the assailant as a man in his thirties or forties with a round belly. Again detectives did not know they were dealing with a serial killer and did not make the connection between the Otero and Catherine Bright case to this recent murder. Despite the detailed descriptions provided by the children, their accounts unfortunately did not yield any fruitful leads for the investigation. The insatiable monster lurking within the mind of BTK hungered for another victim. Succumbing to his twisted desires, on December 8, 1977, a call was made to the Wichita police dispatcher from a public payphone. Yes. You will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing. Nancy Fox. The dispatcher then confirms the address in which the man replied, Yes, that's correct. Upon their arrival at the address, the police were met with a distressing scene. Nancy's lifeless body was discovered, bound and strangled in a manner reminiscent of Shirley Vian and the Otero murders. During the forensic examination of the crime scene, investigators noticed the absence of certain personal belongings, such as a driver's license, indicating that they may have been taken as trophies. Additionally, semen was found near Nancy's body, although she had not been sexually assaulted. Despite the clear recording of the phone call, which was played repeatedly on various news stations, the police received numerous tips but failed to find a conclusive match. Although there was no official announcement connecting Nancy Fox's murder to BTK's previous crimes, the residents of Wichita began to grow concerned. In January 1978, 
BTK sent a poem to the Wichita Eagle that parroted a nursery rhyme referencing the murder of Shirley Vian. Initially, the poem was dismissed as a Valentine's Day advertisement due to its timing and was disregarded. Unsatisfied with the lack of media attention, BTK took further action. On February 9, 1978, a letter arrived at Cake TV, claiming responsibility for seven murders and issuing a chilling threat of future killings. The letter included a detailed drawing of the Nancy Fox murder scene, which closely resembled the actual crime scene photographs. Furthermore, a poem titled, O Death to Nancy, was included, briefly describing the murder of Nancy Fox.